If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Glee man, Hi-Dee-Dee and Bendsome. No idea what I'm talking about? Well, these are all words from National English, a version of the English language developed in the 19th century by William Barnes who hoped that by taking the language back to its Anglo-Saxon roots, he could solve the problems he believed were plaguing the country. However, rather unsurprisingly, this new national tongue failed to take off. Our sub-editor, Rhiannon Davies, caught up with the historian Sean Rees, who wrote a feature on William Barnes and his linguistical innovations for the July issue of BBC History magazine. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Um, My first question for you is, your feature that you wrote for us is centred on the work of Reverend William Barnes. Can you very briefly tell us who he was? Reverend William Barnes is a fascinating character. He um, He was a polymath. He was obviously a cleric, 
um, in a Dorset parish. He was also a schoolmaster, an inventor, a linguist, a philologist, a craftsman, um, a father of a large brood of children. He was very interested in the agricultural life of the people among whom he lived, having come from agricultural stock himself. And he was a social commentator on quite a low level, but he was very committed to what he saw as um, improving the lives of the people among whom he lived in Dorsetshire. And what's rural England like during his lifetime? Well, he's, his, he lived quite a long life and it spanned pretty much the whole of the 19th century. So he was born in 1801 and died in the 1880s. So when he was a young man, which was, was just after the Napoleonic Wars ended in um, 1815, England, uh, the whole of the UK, but England in particular, went into a long period of economic depression for lots of complicated reasons, but also because a massive army and navy, which had been built up over years of war with France, was suddenly demobilised and a lot of men were around trying to find trying to find work. Um, this happened in tandem with a programme of what was known by the people who carried it out as agricultural improvements and known by the people who suffered the consequences as something pretty different, which largely meant introducing new technologies and new ways of financing land uh, purchase. And the, the thing that had most impact on ordinary people in living on the land was the enclosure movement. So over a century or so, massive areas of common land that had been free to use by everyone were taken away from the public and put into private hands. And this left people, along with a demographic increase, in increasingly dire circumstances. And Barnes has this very nostalgic view of what rural England was like before these changes took place. How did he see England? What was his view of how the country had been before all this started happening? You could probably say that he was guilty of looking back with rose-tinted spectacles. He had a, an almost John Major-like view of England, maybe not spinsters going around on bicycles, but it, it, it had been a very green and pleasant land where all the classes got on well. Um, the peasantry was prosperous. Everybody lived in harmony with each other. The classes knew their place, but were also happy in it. It was obviously a Christian-infused vision of England, as well as a slightly Tory one. But he saw that the changes which had been taking place to the detriment of the people around him were caused by an ever more grasping upper class. And he wasn't wrong, probably. And he thought that this upper class was the direct inheritor of the Norman elite, which had come over in 1066. So the troubles that the poor were, were fa- or the poor, the people who had become poor, the people who used to be self-sufficient but were, had now been dispossessed and impoverished, the troubles that they were facing could be directly traced back through the centuries to the Norman conquest, which had displaced again, in Barnes's view, a Saxon elite who had known how to live side by side benevolently with the peasantry. So if they had not been kicked out or um, exterminated by the Normans, everybody would still be living in a sort of happy fantasy. And what role does language play in that view? Well, here, here is where but Barnes is a very eccentric man and his, his eccentricity is probably most evident in his language programme, which is what I found just deliciously bonkers about him when I when I stumbled across him. He had this idea that if, Engli- if the English language could be purged 
of its Norman imports, which basically made anything Latinate. Then the people who spoke it, and he wanted all classes to do this, not just the working classes, but also the, you know, the posh people who worked in the, the government, church and so forth, who spoke this, this Latinate English. He thought that if everyone spoke Anglo-Saxon, then everybody would get back into an Anglo-Saxon sort of sensibility and the gulf that he saw as having emerged between the classes would be bridged over and it would be a route to return to the, to the lost harmony of, a, of the Saxon age. And you've touched on this a bit in one of your previous answers, but why was Barnes so well placed to make this language a reality? He was a passionate student of language and he found out through decades of research whether whether this is true or not, I'm not in a position to know. I'm simply re- relating to you what he found out from his research, that the dialect which was spoken by the Dorset folk around him, and of, you know, in the 1830s, Dorset is practically untouched. You know, these, be, these are people who live there all their lives and have very little contact with other types of spoken English. And he thought that the, the Dorset dialect was directly descended from Frisian, and from the dialect of Wessex. And therefore, it was the closest you could possibly get of all 19th century variants on English to the original one that had been spoken before the conquest. As I say, I can't, I can't vouch for this, but that's his conclusion on, on the basis of decades of, of study. So he thought that the Dorset dialect could become the basis of a new national English stuffed with Anglo-Saxonisms to replace all those evil Normanisms which had been brought in and corrupted society. And how does he go about crafting this new language? How does he bring it to life? Well, again, he he sat at his... When he found time to do his schoolmastering and preach sermons and so forth, who knows, because he sat at his desk for about 20 years putting together books of etymology, impenetrably dense books on etymology and what he called a word hoard, uh, which is a glossary, a list, a list of words, which was a combination of words taken from the Dorset dialect, which, as I say, he thought was pure, pure and in inverted commas, and words that he had excavated from Saxon and associated languages. And he wanted to promulgate these works. He was never successful in this. He wanted these to be taken up and replace the Latinate English, which was regarded as the better sort of English. And the poems that he writes in the 1830s and the 1840s, which are in Dorset dialect, can they also be seen as part of this new language or would you view them as something slightly different? They're slightly different. They are they are pure Dorset and he uses them he just he uses them largely to describe the beauty of the the environment in which he lives and the simple rustic pleasures that he sees the the um, the farming folk as he would have called them enjoying around him he does also use some of them to address the problems of dispossession and emigration which was a, a one of the the age's big cures for demographic increase and um, too many people and not enough land but he hadn't at that stage, this is the 1830s, and he had, when he was writing his Dorset poetry, and he hadn't at that stage really sat down and started formulating, as I say, these extraordinary works of etymology where he, he runs us through, if, you know, if any, they're on Gutenberg.org, so if anybody's got time on their hands and wants to look them up, it's a, it's a cure for insomnia. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm sure our listeners will be very intrigued to perhaps hear some of this language. Would you be happy to read us a little bit of Dorset dialect? Right, this one is called The Girt Woke Tree That's in the Dell. And before I read it, I'm, I really, really don't want this to be offensive to anybody who lives in the West Country. I'm Cornish myself, um, even though I completely lost the accent. And I, he writes it phonetically, so that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. The Girt Woke Tree That's in the Dell. The girt woke tree that's in the dell, there's no tree I do love so well, vor times and times when I were young, I there climbed and there as one, and picked the acorns green as shed in wrestling storms from his broad head, and down below's the cloty brook where I did fish with line and hook and beat and play some dips and whims, the foamy stream with white-skinned limbs. So you mentioned that Barnes uses his um, Dorset dialect, his poetry, for political means, as a political commentary. Can you tell us a bit more about this, and in particular how he used it to discuss the swing riots? He wrote, in the 1830s, he wrote a series of, of poems, which are called, I think the formal name, that the name of the form is an eclogue, which, so the, the poem is written in the form of a conversation between local people. And he's got two men who are discussing, directly discussing the fact that the land that they used to use, that used to be common land, has been enclosed. And the only solution that they've got is to emigrate, because this was the age of either emigration to release the pressure of demographic change or breaking up machines. And the swing riots in the 1830s were a rash of riots that that, uh, spread east to west across southern England by men, mainly men, there may have been some women, who were in exactly that position. They had been kicked off common land. They they no longer had secure tenure as agricultural labourers. So once upon a time, they might have had a year-long job and now they had labour by the day or by the season. And they saw the new technologies as being responsible for their plight. And so there was a rash of uh, destruction of them, in response to which... Several men, the Tollpuddle Martyrs, Tollpuddle being a village in Dorset, close to where um, Barnes himself lived, were transported to Australia. And did many other poets and or other um, creative types, intellectuals, did, did they support them? Or, or was Barnes an outlier? In relation to the Tollpuddle Martyrs in particular, that group, I think it was six men, that group had a great deal of support. It There was a lot of sympathy expressed for them by major politicians of the day and clerics. So a campaign was mounted. And in fact, those men were pardoned and brought back to Britain after I think they'd been in the penal colony for about six years. 
you mentioned that he has these very magisterial reference books where he packs in some of these words that he excavates from Anglo-Saxon language. And you wrote a really fabulous box out for us um, in the feature that you wrote for the July 2021 issue of BBC History magazine. Could you share a couple of the words he comes up with and how he translated them? Well, there are some real gems in the in the word hoard. So I think one of my favourites is his word for magnificent, which is haididi, high hyphen didi. I also like his word for pram, or as he said, perambulator, which is a push wainling, because a wain is a wagon, and so it's a wagonling that you that, that you push. A simpler push wainling, flexible, bendsome. He was very keen on the sum suffix. And in carveling was an insect because it had carvings on it. Um, so some of the some of the words that he puts together, clearly, you know, he's been studying their roots for 20, 30 years and others he just seems to think, oh, that sounds nice. I think I'll put that one in. So it's, it's a bit of a pick and mix, the word hoard. Glee man, a musician. It's all very gendered. There were no, there were no glee women in, um, in Barnes's world. So would it be quite easy for someone else who was very interested in his language system? Were, were the rules clear enough that other people could have kept on with his work or was it very much in Barnes's own mind and that was that? You could carry on with the work and indeed it's, I've introduced William Barnes to a large number of my friends, especially during lockdown when we all had time on our hands and it's become something of a parlour game to, to, you know, to speak in Barnesian. So he, because he lays out in such, de- in such detail the syntactical rules of this national English that he was creating, um, you can follow up and write your own word hoard should this be something that you find appealing? It's a, it's a niche taste, but, you know, some of us enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure he'll be very glad if he knew that people were continuing on with his work. I bet that'll make him very happy. I, I think he'd be delighted by it. Yes, I think he really would. Especially because at the time, it was quite a um, mixed reception to his language, wasn't it? It was. I mean, he never, he was known locally. He was known and admired locally. And I think quite beloved by his parishioners, um, despite his his neglect of them. But outside the borders of Dorset, Wessex as he would have had it, he was really very little known. And certainly his ideas were not taken up. They didn't they didn't percolate. They weren't they didn't become a part of the discourse in any way. He was he was an eccentric rural cleric and uh, that was how he was treated. I think somewhat to his dismay, I think he would have liked to have been taken up by the great and the good and to go and lecture the high and mighty on how they should be speaking and how they should be dealing with the poor, but the, the opportunity never came his way. And he did contact Queen Victoria, didn't he, in an attempt to try and get her to translate a speech? He wanted Queen Victoria, when she was addressing one of the Houses of Parliament, I think in the 1860s. And she was addressing the Houses of Parliament on the Irish question, if I remember correctly. And he suggested that instead of the high-flown language that had been put into her mouth by whichever of his, her advisors had written the speech, that she should speak it in what turned out to be pure Dorset. The idea was not, was not taken up, unsurprisingly. But he does have one very ardent supporter, um, who is Thomas Hardy. Why was he so influenced by Barnes? Well, Thomas Hardy 
only lived down the road. He was a, he was younger than Barnes, but the two men did know each other personally. They spent quite a lot of time together. And Barnes's vision of the Dorset, the purity of Dorset life, the fact that it harked back, there was there was the the, the customs and culture of the people could be traced back for centuries with scarcely a break. And the language that they spoke was taken by Hardy and used in several of his books. You know, the, the wide, the heath that Hardy is so fond of t- crops up quite a lot in um, Barnes's poems. And somebody like Tess could easily stride across from the Dorset dialect, eclogues, wailing and moaning. And So I have a feeling that I know the answer to this, but... Is there a major legacy of Barnes's language or is it one of those interesting historical footnotes? Oh, sadly, it's just a footnote, I think. Very sadly. I did when I did wonder whether some of the more ardent Brexiteers might take him up because he seems to convey an image and a language which seems to belong to their notion of how England used to be and how English people used to live. But it, um, who knows, you know, maybe this will be the trigger. And why, what drew you to share Barnes's story? Oh, just the bonkersness of it. I thought it was so funny. And he's, that's it. It's, it's, there's, there's a, a real English tradition, I think, which continues to this day of slightly nutty clerics cloistered in beautiful rectories somewhere in, you know, in the deepest West Country, studying fossils or, you know, excavating Anglo-Saxon or striding about collecting botanical specimens or whatever. And he, he falls very neatly into that tradition. That was Sean Rees. You can read her feature on William Barnes in the July issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. It also includes features on the Black Death, the Cuban Missile Crisis, cricket in the British Empire and catastrophes that changed the world. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. We'll be back tomorrow when Julian Richards will be speaking about the Viking Great Army. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.